in our traveling that we've been doing through the book of Ephesians, we have come to Ephesians chapter 6. We're talking about the whole armor of God. And so if you will turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 10 through 20 this morning. And then I'm going to talk specifically about the first article that is brought in of the armor of God, the belt of truth. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints." And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Last week, I talked about the idea that putting on the armor of God is much the same as saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this was something that one of the early church fathers had mentioned. It's because, and, and we see it so clearly because when we talk about having our loins girt about with truth, we know, if we read through the Gospel of John, we see things like, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then we see the other place where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus himself is the truth. And, it, and I find it so uh, amazing that during the trial, when Pilate is looking at Jesus, he's looking at truth incarnate, and he says, what is truth? And we sometimes ask, what is truth also? And what we're asking for is, how can I know where the division between what is wrong and what is right is? And I don't know how you function, but I know for myself, when it comes to truth, I, I like the truth when it exonerates me. I don't like the truth when it incriminates me. And when, and this is a a thought that C.S. Lewis expounded on in Mere Christianity, but when I, you know, with reason and logic and my faith, they all work together very well. Reason and faith and logic. Usually someone isn't leaving the Christian faith because of reason and logic. Reason and logic work well with their faith. The one thing that doesn't work so well is something else that's in us, something in our desires and our emotions. And so I can be sitting there and I can, for myself, looking at the truth of God's word. And in God's word, I see all of these pictures of me dying to myself, of me taking off the old man. I'm now a new man in Christ. I no longer have the issues that the old man had. I am no longer walking in the sins that the old man walked in. I am a new man. And that's great. While I'm sitting there with reason and logic and scripture and looking at it all, say, yes, I am glad that I am a new man. But there comes a moment in my experience where I see something 
And in Lewis's words, he said, you know, maybe you've become a Christian and now suddenly you meet this beautiful woman or you meet this uh, or you see this opportunity where if you cheated just a little, you could stand to profit a lot. And suddenly, nothing about your reason and logic has changed, but the desire has changed. There's an opportunity has changed, and suddenly you wish, man, I wish I, wish I wasn't a Christian so that I could just go and partake of this. And honestly, that is probably, when temptation comes my way, that has probably been the issue I've had the most. Like, why did I, why did I submit myself to God? Because I could go take of this right now. I could go participate in this and and. Reason and logic tells me, and the world around tells me, that the pleasures of sin endure for a season. And then after that season, it's usually not pretty. I can find example after example, just walking out and walking down the streets of our town and talking with people and saying, you look miserable, tell me what's going on. And they're not going to tell me that, oh, well, I'm miserable, because I made a bunch of right decisions. They're gonna say I'm miserable because I made one wrong decision that led to another one, that led to another one, that led to another one, and now I'm here. And sometimes, and I don't know, um, I haven't run into this as much recently, but in, in years past when I've tried to share Jesus with some homeless people, they had, some of them had been saved numerous times and knew all the truth here but they couldn't live it here. And so sometimes there is something more that we need when it comes to our faith than just the cold logic and reason. Because I submit, and I, and I believe this is, this is very accurate, is that when we look at the facts, when we look at just the, the quantifiable things, whether it's science or reason or logic, when we look at those things, it makes perfect sense that there is a creator God and that he is involved in our lives and he gets to say it, what, what happens in us. But there is a problem that we have. And this is a problem that, and, and if, you, if, you, if you don't wanna read the book, Mere Christianity, you can go on YouTube and search for it. There's a guy that reads it with a British accent and you can just listen to it. And so that's, that's helpful if you don't wanna actually hear it, but in his chapter about hope, he is talking about the fact that we have been given certain desires. And for most, of the, most desires, we understand this, but there are some desires that we don't get this on. So let me see if I can paint the picture correctly. He uses great flowering words, and I didn't have, want to read the whole chapter, but I want to give the concept. Here's this. You and I come with built-in desires. We have a desire for companionship. We have a desire for love. And so we can assume that because we've been given the desire, there is a right way to fulfill that. And we see that right way of companionship is fulfillable within the circle of our family. We have a desire that goes deeper and there is a right way, there is an, there is an emotional, psychological, and physiological desire that we can call it our sex drive or whatever. And we can see that and say, well, there is a proper way to fulfill that. We have a desire to accomplish things. And so we climb mountains, we run races, we do these things. What happens in all of us is that once we have achieved the thing that we thought would fulfill that desire, almost 100% of the time, we reach a moment in it where we say, I thought 
this was going to be better. Like, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying this isn't good. But I kind of thought it was going to be better, more all-encompassing. And we were left with just a little bit of longing that hasn't quite been filled. And this happens with every human pleasure. And so we, are, we're, so we think, okay, I have several options on how to fulfill this. And so you see on the one hand side, the man who goes from woman to woman to woman, the, the person who's going from this adventure to this adventure to this adventure, trying to fulfill that desire. And what they find is after they've gone through all of these over and over and over, they always end up with something just a little bit lacking. It's not quite right. And now we're carrying some baggage with us. If, we, if, our, if our goal is only adventure, then after a while, you know, you might be, um, I, I keep thinking of those YouTube, um, the social media, what are they called? Influencers. And so they, they believe that they have to use, uh, they don't ever want to wear the same clothing twice in, in, in anything because they are, they've made it. And so the problem is they haven't. And so they're literally going and buying a garment and putting it on and hiding the tag, doing their little thing, and then going and returning it because they don't have the money, but they've, they've started out the path showing that they do, so they have to keep up the appearances. And sometimes they crash and burn where there's a tag still showing or something's still there and everyone's like, ah, uh, excuse me. And, and the internet is not kind to that kind of thing when it's discovered. And so there is a, there is a certain amount of a thought that maybe if I just get here, it will be good. So you might crash and burn and, and be like, well, I'm still not experiencing what I want to experience. If you, if you take the experience of a relationship where you just try this one and then you try this one and then you try that one, it doesn't take a genius to look at that and say, well, aren't there some kind of emotional wounds happening? Aren't there some kind of consequences that are coming into your life because you keep throwing yourself to this person and then to this person and there's rejection happening and now you're, you're trying to smile on the outside and you're pursuing another one and you think this one for some reason will be different than all the others and yet it's not. And so there is something left and, and this is where C.S. Lewis makes the conclusion. He says either we conclude, we have several options when it comes to a conclusion but the one that is logical is that if we have a desire that we cannot meet in this world. The logical conclusion is that that desire was put in us because we were made for another world. And so we have been made for that other world. We have some desires here. The fullness of joy that you and I desire, that's in Jesus Christ. One day we will experience that. So what we're looking at when we look at the armor of God and I look at the belt of truth and I think of truth as being... Um, the word of God, I'm thinking about truth as being maybe facts, you know, where I can tell you, you can drive this many miles and turn on this road and I can give you directions and they're factual, they're real and, and you might not like them, but that's the way the road goes and I can just tell you that's where it is and I, and I can say to you that is truth, but what, what we are looking for when we put on the belt of truth is we're looking for something not as Pilate was saying, what is truth out here? But we're asking a different question. We're begging and pleading with God, sometimes not knowing how to put it into words, but we're saying, who is truth? 
and we are needing as human beings to know truth, not as a bunch of facts in a row, not as a chart, not as a theological book, but we're needing to know someone in a personal way. We're needing to know the truth in a relational way. And that is our heart's cry that we see and we, we say it in different ways. And so as we come here and we look at putting on the full armor of God, we're being told, put on you, take action and put on truth. And yet Jesus says he himself is the truth. And so there's something about this interaction that I think has to do with the mystery of the gospel, but it also has to do with when you look around you and you've, you've walked through life for a while, you will notice that you have seasons in your life where you're walking and it's right and it's good and you experience the joy of the Lord and you're like, I feel like I'm succeeding in the things I've set out to do. And then you have other seasons where you're walking and it seems like you're it's not that you're just outright failing. Sometimes you are, but sometimes it's like things are still working, but everything comes hard. Everything comes with really, you know, not just a little sweat of your brow, but a lot of sweat of your brow. And you're, you're kind of having to force everything and nothing seems to be quite right. And you don't like those seasons. I don't like those seasons. I want the season where it's flowing, but there seems to be a correlation in my life with the surrender in my heart toward Jesus and the putting on of Christ and some of those seasons. What I've discovered is when things are really going wrong, actually, truly going wrong, when relationships are breaking up, when, when, when money is being lost, when things are not working and it's really bad, many times in the middle of that, if I take the time and the place I find the time is flat on my face because I'm kind of beat up. And when I take the time and listen, I hear the voice of my Savior in that brokenness. And he's saying, I am the way. I am the door. Come to me. I am the path forward. I am the truth. And, and in that relationship of pursuing him and of walking through the door, walking in the way, coming to the truth, it, the brokenness that's around me often takes on a certain sacredness to where I look back to that brokenness and I said, you, and, and, I, and I like want to tell people, okay, so I went through this really, really horrible time, but, you, but what happened was in the middle of it, I found my Lord and he was there with me and he was walking with me. And that is part of the mystery uh, that we are being invited into because in Ephesians, Paul keeps talking about the mystery and then he tells us, some things so clearly and so surely and says, you go do this. Go put on the full armor of God. As if it was just something we could just go do. And so I'm, I'm reminded when I read this, there's another passage in scripture that really reminds me of this where he's, where, especially where it says, you know, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And when I look at all these elements that are here and everything he's talking about, I'm reminded of another instance in the history of the Israelites that in many ways sounds familiar when I'm reading this. So in, in, in Exodus chapter 12, the children of Israel are getting ready to go to leave Egypt. Egypt. 
And they are told, they're given the instructions. I won't read all of it. They're being told to take a lamb without spot or blemish. And we know when now, looking back, we say, well, that lamb represents Jesus. And so they take the lamb, and when they, they are killing the lamb and get preparing it to eat, but they take the blood, and they go outside their door, and they put it on the doorpost, and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And then the, the angel of death comes through the land, and everywhere that, they, that the blood was on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over, and everywhere where the blood was not on the doorpost, the angel of the Lord went inside, the angel of death came in and killed the firstborn. And so we see here so many pictures of Jesus because we have the perfect lamb of God who is slain for the sin of the world. And then we see his blood is on the doorpost and the, and the judgment, the death passes over and instead there is still life on the inside. And, and there's, there's an amazing picture here and there was a meme going around the internet recently. I saw it in so many different ways. But they, the, the basic thing was when the death angel goes through Egypt, they don't st- did not stop and ask, who's in this house? If the blood was on the doorpost, they kept going and they passed over. And in the same way, you and I, when, when, when the blood of Jesus is applied to us, to the doorpost of our heart, when we've surrendered to him, the angel doesn't come along and say, well, who's in here? They look at the blood of Jesus and that's all they need to know. For those principalities and powers that are out there, that's all the principalities and powers need to know is that the blood of Jesus is on the doorpost of my heart. And that's a, that's a good picture. But if you keep looking at the picture of the Passover, it says in verse 11, uh, Exodus 12, verse 11, it says, thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The picture was, you're not eating a meal to just sit down and enjoy it. You're not making a bit of roast beef and you're gonna spend 18 hours roasting this thing and then you're gonna sit around in your stocking feet in your house and, and slowly eat of this and chat and talk and, and of days gone by and it's, this is not the time for that. The time for the Passover, the moment that they were in was the Lord is moving. He is about to do something. He is delivering his people and you need to be ready. So put the blood on the doorpost, put your belt on, be ready. Have your feet, your shoes on your feet and you eat it standing. Don't even sit down, just eat it standing up because it's coming and in the morning they moved out. And you look at it logistically and you say, wow, that is a miracle in and of itself, how we moved out that many people out of Egypt and we get them out of town and we're headed toward the land of Canaan. Now, there's a lot of other things that happen on the, land, on the road to the land of promise, but there is this picture given. And so I want to now take that picture and bring it back to us when he says in Ephesians, he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. On the night of the Passover, they were not wrestling against the Egyptians. There was actually nothing that they could do to stop the death angel. There was no Egyptian guard strong enough. There was no Egyptian magician smart enough to figure out how to avoid this. There was no royalty that protected anyone. The only thing that protected anyone in that night was the blood of Jesus. 
And it was, we weren't dealing with flesh and blood. We were dealing with principalities, with powers. And so there is something that's happening in your life and mine. We are called to follow Christ. We're called to walk with him. We're called to go to the land of promise. But many times we don't fully appreciate the fact that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's pretty easy to look out across the landscape and you know, the general in Iran or the, we can choose people and say, well, there's the enemy. And sure, they might be an enemy of the state. They might be an enemy of the free people. They might be an enemy. They might actually want to kill us. It's possible that we have physical flesh and blood enemies. But there is another enemy and he's not flesh and blood. And this enemy is not only seeking to destroy high-level people, he would like to destroy everyone. In the account that we were just remembering of the, the Magi coming and visiting the young child Jesus, when King Herod sees that the wise men don't come back, this is not King Herod's idea. This is an idea from the pit of hell that comes to him. He says, well, let's go kill all of the boys, all the babies in Bethlehem, two years and younger. Because the enemy is not concerned about whether King Herod is on the throne or not. The enemy really doesn't care. As long as King Herod is following, not following God, the enemy is fine. But the enemy does care that not only is there supposedly one out there that has the face of, that is Jesus, that is God incarnate, but he cares because every child in Bethlehem carries somehow in their face and in their body the image of Jesus Christ. And so to this day, we're not just killing all the children in Bethlehem. In America, we look at all the abortion that's gone out and how many babies have been killed in the womb over the last decades. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking when you stop and look at it, but the enemy doesn't care how he kills them. Doesn't need to have a, an altar to Molech. Doesn't need to have some other Aztec or some weird worship from the past where they're worshiping gods and killing children. He doesn't need any of that. As long as he can be destroying people, that's all he wants. And if he can't outright destroy them, then he's looking around principalities and powers. How can we just keep these people from following Jesus? And so I am under attack. You are under attack. There's, there's times when uh, the East and the West kind of clash where you have people from the east and every little thing that happens, they're convinced it's a demon that's attacking the church. And so, you know, you come in and, and I felt this myself. You're coming in, you're setting up the sound system and suddenly we get some horrible feedback. And you're like, wow, the enemy's attacking us today. Or you could get scientific as those in the west are more likely to do and say, well, the reason that we had that problem is because we had a monitor here, we had a microphone there and we had this one open and we had that going on. And so we created a loop that started going and then we had this horrible sound. And so I can tell you scientifically why it happened. You can get to the point where everything that happens in your life, you're going to the scientific reason and saying, this is why it's happening. And you will be right a lot of the time. But you are also under attack. The enemy has a target on you. He would like to kill, steal, and destroy. He would like to kill you. He would like to steal your joy. He would like to destroy your testimony and your witness. And this is where, when Paul is asking us to put on the full armor of God, this is why when we look at it, we say, wait a minute, Paul, you're telling me to put this on. 
because I can understand from a Psalm 91 sort of perspective where I am running to shelter under the shadow of the Almighty, under the, and, and he is doing the protecting. But why am I being told to put on this armor? And part of this is because of that, uh, what I mentioned earlier, when the, you know, the very first thing that Jesus said that is anywhere close to a command is when he looked at John the Baptist and said, permit it to be so now. And John the Baptist is saying, I should be baptized by you. Why do you want me to baptize you? Like this, this is confusing to me. And, and Jesus says, let it be this. This is the way it needs to be. So John the Baptist says, okay. And he baptizes him. In the same way, there are things about our Christian faith where God, for reasons that we will fully understand one day, is saying to you and I, I want you to put on the full armor of God. I want you to put on the belt of truth. I want you to do this. And we look at it and say, you know, I feel like David taking on Saul's armor. I'm like, well, I haven't tried. I don't know if I can go in this. It's too big for me. And yet he says, this is your armor and it is fitted for you. And when we, when we stop and look, I think we circle back to the truth that we came to last Sunday and saying, putting on the full armor of God is like putting on Jesus Christ. For whatever reason, Jesus wants us to be clothed with him in our daily interactions. I want to encourage us because, you know, there have been days when I have taken, uh, actually a lot of days, I just made it part of my morning routine where I would pray through this. And I would say, Lord, I want to take up the whole armor of God because I want to be able to withstand in the evil day. So I'm taking on the belt of truth. I'm putting on, Lord, I'm taking on the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm putting on my feet, the shoes, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Lord, I want to be quick to run with the good news when it's needed. I want to be quick. I want my feet to be joyful feet, carrying the gospel. I want to take the shield of faith. I want an active faith, Lord, with which to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Lord, I take the helmet of salvation and I take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And Lord, I'm praying. And so I will just pray through, this, through the armor and put it on. And it's a good exercise, like a morning routine, because you're already putting on shoes and putting on a belt, and, and most of us don't have to wear a helmet on a daily basis. But, you know, we're, we're putting on the armor of God. And so it's, it's a good exercise. But the question that I have in, in just looking at this is, in the Passover with Jesus, uh, with, with, the, with the lamb that represents Jesus, they are participating in the, it's like communion. The picture is, is, is like communion where we're taking part of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ is covering us. And so there's so much richness there and so much beauty there that I, at the same time, I get lost in the grandeur of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. And I am somewhat surprised that he uses these ways of showing it with the, with the lamb, with the children of Israel, where they're the ones responsible for putting the blood on the doorposts. And so there's like this, this mixture of responsibility and where Christ is just way more than I can ever imagine. 
And so I think this is why in our today, in, 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 in after 2,000 years of believers looking and walking and, and, and examining scripture and, and walking it out and following Christ, we have different camps in theology where we're trying to describe it. And we say, well, God is, does everything. And we say, yes, but we also have free will and we're responsible for something. And I think there will be coming a day, and, and some of us get to experience a little bit of that day here, but there's coming a day when we will better see the various facets of who God is and what he's doing. But for whatever reason, God is asking you to walk with him, putting on him to defend against his enemies that are trying to destroy you. And there have been times in my life where I've been walking along and I was blindsided by something, whether it was in a relationship where someone says something or does something, whether, you know, whatever the instance is, there's something that starts happening. And a, a couple times in my life, it's actually been sickness where I just out of the blue was feeling so ill. And I'm like, I'm not ill. I don't have anything to be ill about. And yet I'm feeling so ill and I'm going along and suddenly I think, wait a minute, what if this is an attack from the enemy? And so it's a place where I now go regularly. When something is coming against me, I say, you know, I don't know. I'm looking with physical eyes. I'm not seeing principalities and powers. I know they're there. I'm not just wrestling with flesh and blood, whether it's yours or mine. I'm not just wrestling with flesh and blood. I don't know. Maybe I'm under attack. And maybe the picture of the blood on the doorpost is there so that now as a new covenant believer, I can say, you know what? I'm just going to make sure that the blood is still on the doorpost. And I'm going to make sure that my feet are inside the house when the principalities and powers are going over. And so for me, putting on the full armor of God becomes more of a position. I think of the old evangelist, he used to say it over and over again. He says, if you want to live in blessing, you've got to live on blessing ground. And the idea is you can't just go out and sin all over the place and then expect God to bless you because you prayed over your meal or something. You have to take your position where God wants you to be and then you can expect his blessing. And so for me, putting on the belt of truth well, this is way more than just putting on a leather girdle of some kind. This is way more than me just finishing the clothes I'm doing. This is putting on Jesus Christ himself, the personality of truth. This is more than memorizing a list of apologetic arguments so that I can win some argument. This is taking on the literal blood and body of Jesus into my spiritual life to where I am changed and made into a new person so that I can fully expect that when I walk into battle, I may not know what the enemy has in mind or what he's going to do. I may not know the argument, but I will represent Christ in that moment. And I will come, yes, with the victory of Christ, yes, with the protection of the blood of Jesus on my life, but I will also come with the person of Jesus. And there's times when I have walked into conversations and I've started talking and I've realized I am really doing all the talking around here and it's not helping. And there's been other times when I've said, I'm going to go into this conversation and so I want to make sure that I am right. And so on my way there, not right as in winning, but right as in right with God. So on my way to the conversation, I'm praying 
and I'm finding my position inside the house where the doorposts are covered by the blood. I'm saying, Lord, cover me with your blood today. Cover me with you and fill my heart, not just with truth as in facts, but truth as in you, the God of the universe who loves everyone. And it's been absolutely phenomenal to walk into a conversation after having submitted myself to the Lord in this way and then to watch him do the work and to see his heart flow through. And it doesn't have to require brilliance on my part. It doesn't have for me, I don't have to have memorized all the way that these arguments work because this is the thing that scares me the most about apologetics. I'm like, dude, you're going to trip me up so fast when we get into this discussion. I get the general concepts. I love listening to it. I love reading the apologetics and understanding why it is that these things are so. But if you put me in there and I see the face of someone who is, who is hostile to Christianity and he's, he is not liking me, well, I can just forget every argument just about that fast. And the one thing that I can keep with me is if I understand I am here as a representative of the king. And for reasons unknown to me, he has chosen me to be his person, and he's my God, and he's chosen me to wear himself, to be clothed upon with himself. You know, we, in Psalms, we have the picture where it says, the Lord is clothed with strength, or thou art clothed with honor and majesty. And then in Psalm 18, we're given the picture where, he, where David is praying, he says, you have given me strength unto the battle. And so we're, we're, we see the image of Jesus high and lifted up and he is wearing strength or he's wearing, uh, and, and in the Old Testament and in the New, we often, when the, in the visions that the prophets have, we see the linen garment or clothed in white. And so we get the idea that clothing is important. And so in our spiritual idea of clothing, it's important that we are not putting on our own filthy rags because I'm telling you, if I bring my apologetics to the argument, it's filthy rags. It's gonna, you, can, you can just cancel it so quick. You can say, ah, that's a faulty argument. Or, you know, and, and you can just, I was a part of a debate team for like one semester type thing. I didn't like it. I just, I love to talk. I love to share things. And I don't mind having a conversation. But if you're going to be keeping points of how many points I make and how many points I've rebutted, and you're going to give me this many minutes to do it, and wow, I just get all, I don't like it. I get all shook up with it. So what I am suggesting is not that you are going to walk into battle against principalities and power and somehow by your prowess and by your ability and by your strength are you going to be able to pull out the sword of the spirit and you're going to be able to, to hack your way through and you're going to win in some way. I'm suggesting that we're being called when we say put on the belt of truth. We're, it's, it's another way of saying submit your life to Jesus Christ. As the apostle said, submit to God and draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need to submit to God. And if you're like me, you need different ways to be reminded that I need to be submitted to God in all areas. And I will tell you, um, we saw Stacy and I were looking at a collection of quotes last night and one of the quotes was, pride is one of the last sins to leave and the first one to come back. And, and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of true. You know, you're like, and, and for me, it's sometimes, wow, I feel truly humble. Pride must have just left. 
that's great. And finally, and then just like that, back in it comes. <laughs> and it's like, it barely was gone, right? And so there is, there is just this issue that you and I have where we have so many things with flesh and blood that mess us up. So back to the idea that we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In military history, we write down the accounts of when we win and how we win. And you can go back and you can read some of these stories. And, you know, I, one of my favorite ones still is at Gettysburg where you have Joshua Chamberlain and his, uh, the, the, I think it's the second main that's up there at the end. And he's been told, this is, you're the, you're the extreme end of the line. So hold it. Don't let it go. And he is out there and he's, he's wondering because he's, ex he's out in the woods. He's way out there. He shouldn't be attacked except for the fact that Longstreet decides to attack right there. And so suddenly the full brunt of the battle is here for a while. It's also happening over there. But now he's left with the question, I'm supposed to hold it. And he's, he's left with the, the, how long am I, like to the last what? Do I hold it to the last man, to the last? And then they run out of ammunition. And, and the generals on up have actually been killed, and so there is a supply line problem, and the, and the ammo isn't coming down. And so now he has been, he's repelled two full-on attacks from Longstreet right here in front of him, and they're down there in the woods, and he knows they're coming again, but they have no more ammo. And the guys are coming to him saying, we're out, we're out, we're out. And so in that moment, what does he do? Well, he takes... And he looks up and down the line and he's like, well, fix bayonets, we're going to charge. And so as the Confederates are charging back up the hill toward his position, Chamberlain gives out the command, they fix bayonets, they shoot off the last rounds that whoever still has, and then they charge down the hill. And it was an amazing moment because the Union Army had very seldom seen the Confederates run. But on that day, to the astonishment and surprise of everyone over that way, they look over there and they hear a yell, and it's not the Confederate yell, it's this, these boys from Maine are yelling, <laughs> and they're charging, and the Greys are running, and they're running a far distance, and they're going along, and a bunch of them surrendered, and they got, and they, their supply line wasn't broken, they still had ammo, but for whatever reason, that day, looking up and seeing these men running down the mountain, and so it was, it was an amazing thing. So now you take that, that victory and you say, okay, well, here's how victories are won on the battlefield. You run out of bullets, and then you, you fix bayonets, and you charge. And so if I was to take that and say, okay, class, now we're going to go out to this, and we're only taking six rounds each because it's important for us that we run out of bullets so that we can fix bayonets and charge. Well, we would lose because it's not a strategy for battle. It was a moment. It was brilliance, but it could have been an accident. What made Joshua do that? We don't know. He doesn't know. He wrote about it later. It just was in his mind at the moment. He, he was like, I have no other options. I was left here to hold this position. I can't let it go. And I can't get ammo, so this is, this is the only option I have left. And so, so we see this picture where he has been, the victory happens, but now we can't make a law about that one and say, ah, this is the way to win wars. 
And there's other stories that you'll, you know, if you read Civil War history, you would say, well, the way to win a war is to get entrenched behind a stone wall. That's what you want to do. You want to be on the high ground, behind a stone wall. That's the way to win wars. And, and you'd be true, about 75% of the time, that position wins the battle. But we're talking about a spiritual war and we go back, and this is, this is the crazy part. Again, stories of victory are written, and we read them in uh, books. We read the missionaries. We read, and, and there's more than you will. You can read your entire lifetime and just be constantly reading a book about the saints, the people who have gone before. And you can keep reading. I'm, you will always be discovering new people. Have you ever heard of this guy? Have you ever heard? And you'll find new people and you can be reading their stories, and here's the part. Um, you know, I read some of their stories, and they say, well, I spent three weeks praying and fasting in my room, and then the victory came. And the other one says, well, we went out, and we boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus with the word of God, and we could have died, but instead, for whatever reason, the enemy decided to let us live, and the victory was won. And then you read things like Richard Wormbrand and you see all the heroes of the faith that were in prison in Romania and in Russia. And you read, there's other men who write about the prisoners in Cuba and you, and you, and you start seeing these pictures and it's like it says in Hebrews, some of them win boldly and others die boldly. And the, the formula, again, just like Joshua's formula over here, we can't bring a formula and I can't come and say, here is how you're going to be a conquer and always win the victory and always live to tell about it. Because in the Christian faith, if you're looking to live here now and tell your war stories here, which is what we want to do when we have our fellowship meals together, we want to hear war stories. We want to hear, how are you conquering? How are you, how can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? This is part of what we're sharing. But I don't have a formula for you that will always let you win. But in the belt of truth, I have a person for you. I have the king of kings. And so you're putting on the belt of truth and you're thinking, well, which, which, you know, um, which team am I fighting with today? Do I have the right colors on? And as you're putting on the belt of truth, you hear the voice that was speaking to Joshua back there beside the river where he says to the man that's standing there and he says, are you for us or against us? And he says, neither. And you will suddenly discover that the belt of truth is Jesus. And you're asking, are you on my side? And he's saying, no, are you on my side? And he flips the question around on you. And so when you're putting on the full armor of God, and guys, you can go on YouTube. I've been doing this um, now the last year and a half or so, every so often, I, I like listening to music. And so sometimes I'm listening to like Lord of the Rings type of music. Sometimes I'm listening to uh, praise and worship music. Some, you know, there's different, sometimes it's this sleepy piano music. I have all kinds of music I listen to, but one of the sets of music, the playlists I'll go to, are the, like the, the chants of the Knights Templar or the, of the church back then. And there's groups out there chanting these chants from a thousand years ago. What is interesting is in the comment section, the battles rage on between the Turks, between the Middle East, between Europe, and, and they will say things and you'll suddenly be like, wait a minute, you, you still care. Like, 
you're still mad about something, or some battle that happened. And, and then there, there's this one song, um, and if you remember your history about the, the, um, the times of the Crusades, one of the words of the Crusade was, God wills it. And you will see it in Latin, they're, they're, they're chanting this thing in Latin, and you'll see all of these, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it, um, being put down in the comments, and you're like, God wills what? Like, are you still saying you should destroy one? Another? Like, what's happening here? And so it's kind of given me a little bit of a caution when I'm listening to some of these things because I'm just listening because it's like, oh, you know, it's going on back in the background while I'm working and it doesn't have words that I can understand to distract me. But the battles are still being fought. And I can come to this and people have done this since these words have been spoken and written, and I can be praying this on because I have a battle to win, whether it's a political battle, whether it's a, an actual physical battle, I can be praying this and I can start thinking this is all about me and this battle. And then if I'm listening and attentive as I'm putting on the belt of truth, and I realize this is the person of truth that is, I am taking on, and he's saying to me, no, this is not about your political battle. This is not about your battle. This is not even about World War II or any of your the just war battles of the past. This is not what it's about. This is about the high king of heaven calling people to himself and saying, if you abide in me and my words abide in you and we hear a different sound and it's the sound of heaven and we hear the angels worshiping and we realize that we have been given an invitation that came as a command to put on the full armor of God, and it's Jesus. And he's asking us to put on his truth, himself, and to go out into the battle, and we're not fighting our battles, we're fighting his battles. And those battles you will live, maybe not here on this earth, but you will live to tell about one day at the great fellowship meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, at that day, I believe we will get to hear the fullness of what has God done and what does he want to do. And we will share at that point, and it will seem a little too late now to us, but at that point, we will understand what were the strategies for victory. Now, it is enough to say that Jesus Christ himself is our strategy for victory. And he wants to, the spirit, he, the spirit of truth. Because when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, he said, I'm going to send you the comforter. And when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will lead you into all truth. And so we have both Jesus himself saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And saying of the Holy Spirit that he is the spirit of truth. And so I don't want us getting stuck asking with Pilate, what is truth? I want us to be in the place where we say, who is truth? And am I walking with him? And so when I put on the belt of truth, it is way more than just a piece of clothing. It is the king of kings himself humbling himself and letting me, he is not ashamed to be my God. He is not ashamed for me to be his person. And he's brought me to himself and he's called me for that. And so I can walk with him in victory. So I think that is part of what we're going to be seeing as we go through the whole armor of God is that we really are interacting with God himself and he has a battle that he wants to win in you. And some days the battle will be raging in your own heart and some days the battle will be coming forward from outside. 
in the prayer that I mentioned earlier that I've started, it, when I start feeling the effects of illness or I start feeling the, the uh, op- opposition of people or when I am going into a situation and I don't know what's happening, the prayer goes something like this, Lord, I am yours. Cover me with the blood of Jesus. I don't know what I'm going to be running into today. So I just want to resist the enemy that he would have to flee. And I want to take on everything that you've given me so that I can win. So putting on the whole armor of God. And so Lord, if, if I'm talking about sickness, if I'm talking about people, if I'm talking about things, I say anything, Lord, that comes from your hand, I say yes to and I receive with joy and gladness. But anything that is coming from the enemy, I say no, in the name of Jesus, I do not receive that. And then I walk into the circumstances and then I know that I have been inside and the, the, door, the blood is on the doorpost and whatever comes my way, he is using it and he is molding it and, he, and it's okay, but I have taken my stand in him. And so now I am not having to ask at the end of the day, wow, did I just get beat up by the enemy? I can say I was walking wrapped in Jesus Christ. As it says in Colossians, I'm hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us this truth, Lord, that you are truth, that you want us to be hidden with Jesus in God, that we are not left to our own devices, that we don't have to scour over the history books and say, well, how do we always win the battle? But instead, we can cry out to you, and you are our strategy, and you, Lord, and you do at times give us other strategy where you say, do this and do this, and you will receive this. But for the most part, your cry to us and your invitation to us is that we would submit and surrender to you and that we would walk in you. So, Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your provision. And, Lord, I thank you for this day that we're able to put on the full armor of God and to stand. And I pray for each of us as we go into this week that we would take on the full armor of God, and that we would be able to withstand in the evil day. We love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.